I'm Angela Kelly Robeck, host of the Empowered Principal Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Larry Freeland. Larry is a Vietnam veteran and his grandfather was a doughboy in World War One. His father was an officer in the Army Air Corps in World War Two and, and the U.S. Air Force beyond. And his two brothers are also war veterans, having served in other conflicts that followed after the Vietnam War. Larry is the author of the award winning novels. Chariots of the Sky, a story about U.S. assault helicopter pilots at war in Vietnam, and Legacy of Honor, the Patriarch. Awesome conversation, excellent books, and you're going to learn so much. Thanks so much for listening. It would be so cool if you went to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash reviews, and left a review. Could you do that for me? Say some nice words, uh, maybe five stars? Mm. Thanks so much. You are awesome. Enjoy the show. It's the Education Podcast, your favorite show, with lots of groovy guests and they share what they know. So crank it up to 10 and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steve Milletto. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Ah, ah, with Dr. Steve Milletto. Larry Freeland, a Vietnam veteran, is an author of war-themed historical fiction books. He comes from a long line of military veterans. His father was an officer in the Army Air Corps, United States Air Force, whose career spanned 30 years and included World War II through the early stages of the Vietnam War. His grandfather was a doughboy in World War I, and his two brothers were both war veterans, having served in multiple conflicts that our country has been involved in following the Vietnam War. Born in Canton, Ohio, he also lived in Biloxi, Mississippi, Syracuse, New York, Riverside, Colorado, parts of Florida, and Ramey Air Force Base in Puerto Rico. He graduated from the University of South Florida in Tampa in 1968, and then he entered the U.S. Army at at the height of the Vietnam War, serving one tour in Vietnam with the 101st Airborne Division as an infantry officer and a CH-47 helicopter pilot. Upon release from active duty in 1973, Larry returned to civilian life and pursued a career in the financial industry. He earned an MSA in management from University of Central Georgia. After retiring from banking in 2001, he worked as an independent financial consultant for three years in the Atlanta area. He then worked as an instructor for six years with Lanier Technical College in their management and leadership development program. Freeland's books Chariots in the Sky and Legacy of Honor, the Patriarch, are Amazon bestsellers, have earned critical acclaim, and have received hundreds of favorable reader reviews. Now retired, he lives in North Georgia with his wife, Linda, a retired school teacher. They enjoy traveling around the country, going on cruises, and visiting historical places in Europe. They are fans of Le Mans racing and drive their Corvette to several annual races held in the United States. They are involved in supportive activities associated with the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation and veterans-related organizations. Uh, for more information, see LarryFreeland.com, and I'll put that information in the show notes. Uh, a little bit about... Uh, Two of the books, About Chariots of the Sky, a story about U.S. assault helicopter pilots at war in Vietnam. It is the final major operation of the Vietnam War, 60 days for 750 helicopters to do battle. Who wants to be the last man killed in Vietnam? And About Legacy of Honor, the Patriarch, a tale of courage, sacrifice, love, and honor, this 20th century historical fiction saga addresses the horrors of World War I and the challenges that military men faced upon returning, including mental trauma and physical illness, in addition to the hardships of the Great Depression, as well as other historical events before World War II, including the Bonus Army March of 1932 and the Little Steel Strikes of 1937. Larry, welcome home, and thank you for your service to our country, and thanks for joining me today. Say hi to everyone. Hello, and thank you, Steve, for having me on. I'm looking forward to chatting with you for a little while. Well, I'm glad you're here. And uh, we've got uh, um, what I'd like to do is start off by talking about uh, um, you in writing. Uh, Can we talk about what made you want to write novels? I mean, were you always a writer? No, I wasn't. If somebody would have said, Larry, are you going to be writing books uh, five years ago? And I just said, no, I don't think that's in my future. (laughs) I I kind of backed into it. my wife, Linda, is an avid reader, read, read books uh, all the time. She's got one or two on her nightstand. I'm a movie guy. I kind of uh, grew up on movies, love movies. I read books, but not, not like her. And uh, many years ago, um, 
I digress a second. I saw a movie called uh, uh, Oliver Stone's Platoon back in the late 80s. And uh, I knew at the time, being a movie guy, that he was going to make a couple more movies. So after that movie, I thought, gee, I think he ought to make a movie about helicopter pilots. That was iconic to the war. Wrote him a letter. Uh, and he got back a little later on and said, well, you know, I've, I've got both the next movies kind of uh, written up and ready to go. I'm producing one now, the second one, which ended up being born on the 4th of July. And he said, they don't involve helicopters, but you got a great idea. I encourage you to write a book or write a screenplay and see what happens. So uh, I think it was like eight, 1990, 91. I sat down, did some research, and I wrote a screenplay uh, called The Flying Pachyderms, loosely based on the, my experience in Vietnam, just over that short operation, a 90-day period. Uh, entered it in a contest in Atlanta, a screenwriter's contest, Southeast Screenwriters, and got honorable mention. Wow, this is great. Nothing happened, and everybody that read it, though, and there'll be a lot of people, and I kept copies around the house for years after that, said, you know, this ought to be a book. You could really, really get into your characters and so on and so forth. And I said, well, I'm, I'm just not a writer. I was at that time fully engaged in my banking career, and I just couldn't envision myself sitting down and writing a book. But anyway, I put it all away, and about 2017, 2018, it all came back. And I said, you know, that story I had in mind, I really think I ought to sit down and try writing. So going into the end of 19, 2019 and we come into 2020 with COVID on the horizon, I said, I'm just going to go up in my office and shut the door and write a book. So <laughs> during COVID, I spent seven months up here in my office writing this book, Chariots uh, in the Sky. And uh, it was a wonderful experience uh, for me and I enjoyed it. And uh, I ended up getting a publisher here in Atlanta and he's out in California too, Frank Eastland with uh, Publish Authority. Sending my manuscript because he was taking on uh, unsolicited manuscripts if he liked them, however, you know, however they make those decisions. And he said, "You got a good, you got a good book here." So it needs a little polish and everything, but we'll take you on. So we signed a contract and uh, we polished up the book and we put it out there. And uh, Chariots has done quite well, uh, and I've been very pleased with it. And I was told if you get into, you start writing a little bit, you probably ought to have another idea or two. Because if, you know, if you got a good book and it's doing well, your publisher, if you've got one, is going to say, hey, let's do another one. And which he did. And nice. <laughs> so I said, well, I got this idea about a, maybe writing a long story about one generation of, or one family's generation of, uh, three generations of men spanning about a hundred years of our history. And he said, well, write up a, a little summary memo, if you will, a high-level memo, and uh, let's see what you got. I did that. He said, oh, I like this. He said, write your first manuscript, and, and we'll go for it. So we signed a three-book three contract uh, and titled it uh, Legacy of Honor, a trilogy. And each book has its own subtitle. Book one, which we'll be talking about, uh, is uh, Legacy of Honor, the Patriarch. I've just, uh, we just sent out book two, uh, subtitled The Air Warrior for uh, advanced reader reviews. So we hope to get some good reviews back and plan on publishing that probably the end of August going into September, depending on how well the reviews go. Uh, and then book three, uh, I'm loosely working on that now. It's, it's subtitled The Descendants. And basically the storyline is the first one, the Patriarchs, World War One. He has a son who serves in World War II, Korea. And he has three sons that will go on to serve in Vietnam and all our conflicts post-Vietnam. So I'll, that's a long answer to a question, but I fell into it. Uh, I really enjoy it. I kind of get lost in writing the characters and the stories and everything. So uh, it's been a real, real, real fun experience. And, uh, we'll see where it goes from the next, after I finish the trilogy. Nice. That's awesome. <laughs> I do have a couple other ideas, but he hasn't broached that yet. I want to, you know, writing a book takes a good while. Uh, yes. Anyone who's done that. And, uh, so, but anyway, that's, that's, that's kind of that. That's excellent. I appreciate you sharing that. And so it, it brings me right into, cause oh, you already got me thinking about another question I want to ask. Cause it, um, let's, let's talk about this first. Your books are historical fiction. Um, could you talk about how you research? I mean, what do you, um, what do you do here? What do you what, what do you spend time doing to try and figure out uh, um, the information that you need to to make the reality happen? Well, I, I'm I'm also a history buff, American history. Uh, I'm not a war guy. I don't relish war, but our whole history, when you go back 300 years, 250 250 years, it always seems to be a conflict or a war, which 
every generation has one or more of them. And uh, I just, and I grew up uh, around veterans on military bases and I've been associated with them basically my whole life. So I just thought that's a genre, his military history, which uh, uh, fascinates me. Anyway, I've read a lot of books about, about that aspect of uh, those kind of books, those kind of genres. So how do I go about researching it? Well, one, I I've know a lot of veterans, I've known a lot, going back to World War One. we'll talk later about it. My grandfather was a veteran of World War One. I. I met some of his buddies when I was a young boy. And then World War Two. those are my personal heroes. Uh, and I've been around them well, basically my whole life. Grew up on Air Force bases. Uh, they're called SAC bases, Strategic Air Command. My dad being a career Air Force officer. So, uh, you know, I was around pilots the whole time. It's kind of interesting I become a helicopter pilot, but we'll get into that a little later. Uh, so uh, how do I research it? Well, I grew up a lot of, a lot of people who experienced it, particularly World War II, Korea, and my own experiences in Vietnam and post-Vietnam. Um, I read, read a lot of, not a lot of books, but read historical books about the wars. Uh, and um, I do a lot of research online. Uh, the, uh, the websites that are out there from World War II, organizations and just various historical societies and so on. You can, do, you can gather a lot of information from that. And when I wrote, uh, I can use, um, just digress real quick, uh, in writing the first book here uh, for the legacy of the Patriarch, about the first half of that book deals with the uh, war in France and the trenches. And I, I went out on Google, Google Maps, and would literally pull up the battlefields and then drill down and, and do the topography to get a feel for the land. Although I've never been on those battlefields, I could get a little bit of a flavor for what the hills look like and so on and, and, and then look at all the different pictures from that period of time. So I do a lot of research online. Uh, so a combination of those things uh, would help pull together the storyline. And I chose historical fiction, but I wanted to make the history real, as real as possible and, you know, as accurate as possible, but put my characters that are fictional in the middle of it and, and let them kind of traverse or go through that period of our history. And I just enjoy doing that, living kind of through the characters. So that's a little bit of how I got around to that. That's awesome. That's, that's cool. Yeah. What lessons do you think a writer of historical fiction could share with his audience? I mean, it, as, as you're doing this work, there's got to be, you know, possibly some messages or some things that you could make sure that are part of your story. What do you think? Well, I think if you're going to do historical uh, writing, whether it be fiction or nonfiction, you need to do your homework, your research. You really want to under to the best of your ability, understand the timelines, what 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 happened, if you will, some of the major characters and uh, events. And then when you're writing it, whether it be fiction or, or nonfiction, I'm just going to speak to the fiction because that's what I, I, I enjoy. Uh, try and be as true as you can to that. And uh, take your reader through that period of time where they're walking in the protagonist's steps. They're living his or her experiences. So you're not only going through history, but you're kind of living it. And you come out the other side and you go, holy cow, I've learned a little bit about history, but I did it through my characters. Um, like, for instance, in Chariots, uh, the main character, protagonist is a, is a captain, TJ, St. James. Um, many people who have read that, and I've got over 500 actual comments out there on uh, on Amazon right now and multitudes other I hear, but a lot of people come back and say, geez, I thought I was TJ. I was right there in the helicopter with them and said, I had, I had no idea what you, what you pilots went through and crews when you were down there in those hot LZs or in world war one, uh, for that, that, uh, when the first half of the book is basically in the trenches and my main character is going through that, which kind of sets up the second half when he comes back and he's got to assimilate back into our country and all the things that he and his fellow veterans had to deal with doing that, uh, you have a better appreciation for what they did in the trenches. And I've had many people, particularly ladies that have read the book, say, I was sure glad to get out of the trenches. I, 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 it was really rough in there. So I try to put my readers right in the action so they can have a little better appreciation for it and, and travel through history. So you come out the other side and you, you learn a lot of little things with, uh, about that period of time. And they try to capture that. So... 
That's awesome. That's uh, you know, it's I can, I can only imagine as you're as you're writing and and trying to bring the uh, reader into the story just to to make that happen. So um, good stuff. I got one more writing style question for you before we get into your books. Uh, do you outline or do you start with an idea and let it take it where it goes? Probably a little bit of both. Uh, I do a high level, so I got a storyline. I mean, uh, I actually, when I, I go back, I wrote that screenplay, and screenplay writing is a little different from book writing, but they always say you got to have a storyline, which is one sentence. This is a story about, and then kind of an overview, and then I drill down a little bit as a, an overall outline on a timeline. So if it's historical and you're going through a period of time, you know, the blah, 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 the different dates, uh, not that they're critical, but so you see, you at least have a historical timeline there. And then the events that I want to capture in, in those sections. So there's a high level outline. And then I design my characters, my, my main character and some of the key supporting characters, uh, design them or build them, if you will, kind of like an avatar. <laughs> and, and then, uh, I'm writing the story, at least my first three books, the one that will come out here shortly, The Air Warrior, I've done those in first-person present, so I'm kind of the, the main character going through this. And when I kind of get comfortable with with him, I just turn him loose. I mean, I had ideas, but at, if I'm in there a while, if he says, let's go this way and just starts drifting off, I'll just follow him, you know. You can always come back and change it, but uh, when I get into character and I'm, and I'm creating, I just let him run. And then I can clean it up later, but uh, that's kind of the fun of it to me. So uh, that's cool. Yeah, that, that, so it's high level and down low. That's awesome. I, you know, one of the things you've talked about, uh, we've kind of touched base a little bit about, is your family. I mean, you're a mm-hmm. third generation military veteran. Uh, could we go a little bit more detail into? Um, a, a, and I, I'm fascinated by this. I'm a former history teacher, and and uh, I've always loved history. And and uh, although I, yeah, I didn't want to tell my dad that much <laughs> but i've turned into my dad because he used to stop and read all the right road signs and and uh, he was huge into different types of uh, military history but uh tell me about uh um tell me a little bit more about your family tell us tell us let's 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 go back at the beginning well it's three generations and, and this trilogy is loosely based on my family my grandfather, uh, who I dedicate the first book to, the patriarch, he was a big man. He was about 6'3", built like a lumberjack. Before the war, he worked in a steel mill. Then he got drafted, and then he went you know, went to France and uh, fought over there in the trenches with the America Division. He was all three major battles they had during the American involvement from uh, mid-1917 through the armistice of November 11th, 1918. Um, and... Uh, he uh, came back, and, uh, and then he went back to work for the steel mill, and he and he just had a real good career working with the steel mills there in, in Canton and Louisville, Ohio. Um, so he had his two years, I guess it was, give or take, in the service. Never talked about it. He did share two stories with me. All that we were, he and I will come back to that. But he and I were really close. I spent a lot of time around him as a younger man, or boy, and then in my early college years. Uh, but he would always tell these two stories, which I've embedded in the book. And uh, But he never talked about anything else, uh, so say with the war. And then my father, he uh, he was in Ohio State uh, in his senior year, and he was in a cadet uh, military program. They didn't call it ROTC back then. I forget what it was called, but he, he envisioned being a pilot someday. And uh, he was a senior in uh, Ohio State in electrical engineering. And, uh, of course, uh, December 7th, 1941, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, uh, everybody, uh, we went to war. And in his senior year, they needed to accelerate what every across the board, bringing in men in all, in all the branches and whatever they could do. Uh, they accelerated his program, and he graduated early, like in March of 1942. And he was commissioned a second lieutenant in the Army Air Corps, and he began his career went through extensive training, ended up in uh, England later at the, uh, towards the end of 42 and served with the eighth air force there. War ends. He comes home. He marries the, my mother in Canton there and, uh, gets out for a couple years and tries civilian life. And it doesn't, uh, he just didn't feel right for him. And he missed some of what he, he, he found appealing in the military. 
uh, the comradeship of the, of the men he served with and the sense of purpose and, and all, those, all those things that kind of make uh, military life what it is. So he, he went back in just before the Korean War, and he ended up making it a career. He, ended, he stayed in 30 years. He served in uh, Japan and Okinawa during the Korean War and came back, and then he ended up in SAC Strategic Air Command bases until he retired in 1971. He, he was a senior officer. Uh, met many of the top people in the service. I met some of them too. Uh, he and uh, General Curtis LeMay, who uh, was, uh, of course, a, a key figure in uh, World War II, both in Europe and in, in, uh, uh, in Pacific theater, ended up being uh, also the top guy for the Air Force, chief of staff for the Air Force. And Dad had met him uh, when he was in England uh, with the 8th Air Force there. And uh, anyway, they kind of, they kind of touched each other's point careers, if you will. Not that dad influenced LeMay's, but LeMay kind of influenced my dad's because uh, dad was also a, a minor in Russian history. He, he was just enumerated with Russian history. And uh, a lot of the top generals in World War II, uh, you know, everybody picks on Patton, but uh, LeMay and a lot of them, Eisenhower, although he didn't really talk about it, and thought the Russians were going to be a major adversary after the war. And LeMay was real interested in that. So that's how he and dad kind of hooked up. And over they had touch points over their, uh, over their dad, my dad's military career where they would talk a little bit about that. Of course, SAC was main purpose was a nuclear deterrent against the bad guys, more specifically the Russians at that point in time. So uh, that was dad's career. And I grew up in that environment, met a lot of pilots from World War II, Korea, of course, the, the bomber bases. And, you know, as a young boy growing up on those bases, uh, they had what they called alerts for the B-50, well, B-47s, and then they went into the B-52s. And there'd be many a time uh, we'd be at the theater on a weekend or at night, and when those fire up those jets out there, they do these alerts. You hear them firing up, and the whole base seemed to shake. I mean, we're talking a lot of uh, aircraft. And, and you never knew if they were launching to go to war or if it was just practice. If they launched... Uh, you could tell when they took off. If they weren't going to launch, they'd shut down eventually and get quiet. But if they launched, you know, two, three, four, five, when we would go off, and you never really knew if that was for real because they did serious drills back then. And you know, you just kind of go, "Oh my gosh, this is hope, hope they come back soon." We don't don't want to go to war. So kind of grew up around that, and then uh, I ended up going in the army for five years and did a tour in Vietnam, got out and started a banking career. And my middle brother, Tom, uh, he went into the Navy, and he was a pilot for 27 and a half years. He retired as a captain in the Navy. He was in the first Gulf War, and he was in a lot of little things, uh, which I'm going to cover in my third book, uh, loosely on, on his character. And my younger brother, Bob, he, uh, he served two years in the Army. Uh, he was in Korea while I was in Nam. He came down on, he got drafted like, a, well, I'll go cover that later, but he got drafted while I was in Vietnam, middle of my tour, and they, and they came down on orders. And my mom told me about it in a letter. So I called the Pentagon and said, hey, you know, I'm here. If you want me to stay, then you send my brother somewhere else, because you're not going to have me and my brother over here at the same time. That's and I said, I'm a pilot, and he's just a grunt. So, you know, you make up your mind. I'll be glad to go home. <laughs> So they cut new orders and sent him to Korea, and he did a one-year tour on the DMZ there in Korea. Came back, got out, ended up being a, a, going to work for the federal government as, a, as an agent. Uh, did all kinds of stuff until he retired at 50, and then 9-11 happened, and he ended up doing two 18-month tours in uh, Iraq and one in Afghanistan for 13 months as a special contractor with security force. He was a linguistic. He spent a lot of time in Africa when he was working for the government as an agent, and he was a weapons expert and an explosive expert. So he, he did a lot of uh, that over there. So, you know, my grandfather, my father, myself, and my brother. So we all we all served in some capacity. We all saw a little action at some point, and uh, so it's just been a part of me, so to speak. That is that is amazing. That is awesome, and I can't. Thank you enough for what your family has done for our country and appreciate it to put themselves in the, in harm's way like that. So, um, but thank you so much. We got, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I'd like to do is let, let's switch to you as a combat uh, helicopter pilot. I mean, could you talk about how you became a, I mean, how did, how did it go from infantry to the, the helicopter pilot and, and could you just kind of share a few of your experiences? 
Sure. Um, it's hard for people, younger people today to understand, but back in those days, uh, up through the Vietnam War, they, they did away with the draft in 1972, but the war was almost, we were pretty much out of it by the time they stopped the draft. But up until that point, uh, young men uh, had to all register when they turned 18 and were subject to the draft. And a lot of uh, prior to the war, Vietnam War and, and so on, uh, uh, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, uh, the draft was, was there. And that's how the military, particularly the Army, brought in a lot of the men they needed to, to fill their ranks, so to speak. Uh, when I was in college from 64 to 68, the war started to really build. And, you know, 64... Everybody got, where's, where's Vietnam kind of thing. I had a friend that graduated a year before I did in high school down to Ramey. Graduated 63. I graduated in June of 64. And we got, we were told about a month before we graduated that he had been killed in Vietnam. He was an infantry guy in the Army. Everybody goes, Warriors, Vietnam. You know, we really hadn't heard about it at that point. By 65, you had the Hydrang Valley. You know, we were soldiers once. So everybody was hearing about Vietnam. And we lived with that through uh, my four years of college. We had, I had, well, all students had to uh, follow up for a deferment called 2S, which I did every semester to stay uh, up so the draft wouldn't come after me. And then I finally decided, well, I think I want to fly planes. So I, I applied to the Air Force uh, program to, be a, uh, to be a, go through pilot training. I did that in 67, got accepted. Uh, in early 68, January, February. And the earliest they could start me was in October. I was graduating in June. My class for officer school would have been in October. And then if I did, got completed that, got commissioned, I'd go on to fly school. Well, when I graduated in June, my draft board drafted me in July and wouldn't give me a deferment. So I ended up going in the Army and I went through basic training, advanced infantry training, and uh, I was coming down at the end of my AIT, and I really wasn't planning on making it a career by any stretch. And a lot of the guys in my advanced infantry training unit were also college graduates, and the Army was trying to get us to volunteer to go officer school and become officers. Uh, they had three branches, infantry, artillery, and uh, armor. And I had, a, I had a dual degree in mathematics and finance, I wanted to go to work for Big Blue IBM if, uh, at that time. But anyway, I thought, well, I'll volunteer because they'll probably pick me to go to artillery because of mathematics, you know, how, right. angles, numbers. That didn't happen. Every one of us got selected for <laughs> infantry school. So we all went down to Fort Benning and trained six months to become uh, infantry officers. And, and I graduated in 1969, June of, well, July of 69, and we were all given six months in country, and then we were going over to Nam as platoon leaders. And while I was at Benning, uh, I was uh, an instructor on uh, heavy weapons, and I met a lot of helicopter pilots in our field exercises. And they said, well, why don't you look at a helicopter school? You talked about wanting to fly. You know, you're flying. You're in the infantry. It's pretty rough over there as an infantry guy. Of course, pilots, it's pretty rough, too. And they said, but at least every once in a while, you're going to be back in a base camp. You might get a cold shower, you know, a hot meal, sleep on a cot. So anyway, I volunteered, got accepted, went to flight school and uh, graduated from flight school. I went January until late November into December of uh, 1960 or 1970. Got my wings, transitioned to Chinooks, which are the big helicopters. They still fly. Uh, was sent to Vietnam in 1971, January 3rd and 71, and did a tour over there with the 101st. Um, so that's how I kind of fell into aviation uh, in the Army. Uh, I really enjoyed flying helicopters until I got to Vietnam. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> there was days it was fun, and there were other days it wasn't. Uh, so, uh, but when I got there, uh, there were several aviators in the airplane we flew over from uh, the States. We landed in, uh, in uh, I'll just talk a few minutes about Vietnam. We landed in Tan Son Nhut, the south, uh, south part of Vietnam there in Saigon. And uh, I thought at that time, it was 1971, and the war was winding down. Uh, Nixon was cutting back on the troops significantly. And the lower part of South Vietnam was pretty inactive. I mean, there's still a little bit going on, but what was actually occurring mostly was up near the demilitarized zone, the separation between North and South Vietnam. 
And uh, I thought I'd be, and as the rest of the guys that were aviators in our group, I thought we was going to be in Saigon, what they call four core down there, because they flew us in down there. There was another place they could have flown us in up closer to the DMZ. Well, anyway, we came down on orders after being in Saigon for two days to report to the 101st Airborne, which was up in I Corps on the demilitarized zone. They were on Fubai, Wei, uh, Quezon, Quang Tri area. And we didn't know at the time, but <clears throat> they were filling up their ranks as best they could because they were getting ready to kick off this big Lomson 719 in uh, end of January, which was going to be a four-month operation that the South Vietnamese were going to go into Laos and try and cut off the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Uh, so we ended up up there, and I was signed to A Company, 159th, a Chinook Company out of Fubai. I got there about, uh, well, about mid-January because we had to do a week of 101st Welcome to the Country training out in the boondocks. And being an infantry guy, they put me out in the field to get the flavor for it and you know, I haven't been in the cockpit of a helicopter in over 45 days, guys. Don't you think you ought to put me there before I start flying? Right. Well, eventually I got up in my unit, and I uh, spent two weeks getting to know the area and getting reacquainted with the, with the Chinook. And they kicked off this uh, this invade, well, they called it an incursion into Laos uh, on February 1st of 1971. And I, I uh, was in that from the beginning to the end. And unfortunately... Uh, for me, it was, and a lot of the fellows, that was the biggest and most extensive operation of the war for helicopter pilots. Uh, and it was supposed to last uh, four months. And we, being the Americans, were going to provide all the air support because the Vietnamese didn't have, they hadn't really gotten trained on helicopters yet. They had a few, but they weren't ready for that. And Nixon prohibited by Congress to send any Americans outside of South Vietnam to fight, but we could fly. <laughs> the Air Force could fly, the Navy could fly, and the Army could fly. So the, the operation was designed to see if the Vietnamese could really handle themselves, and they sent 22,000 South Vietnamese uh, military guys, mostly Army, some Marines, into Laos uh, trying to cut through the country to stop the flow of supplies from coming through Laos. But we had to provide all the air support. Uh, the Army did uh, we had in the 101st about 680 helicopters all total, and then we had about another 50 to 100 brought up because as that operation went on, we were losing a lot of helicopters. Um, short version is it was supposed to be four months. They stopped it after 60 days because it was just a bloodbath. Wow. Um, the, the Vietnamese got in there for about a week, and then the NVA came down and just started attacking all the bases and everywhere they were. Put that in perspective, there's about 20,000 South Vietnamese that ended up in Laos within about two weeks of starting. And the NVA, the North Vietnamese, put in over 60,000 troops, brought down all their heavy equipment, tanks. So every firebase we helped them set up and fly them into was attacked within a, either, as they rolled out, every even going in to set them up, they would attack them. But if they'd been set up for a week or so, they would eventually come and attack them. And, and since they, they had to rely on us, we had to supply them. So uh, and they, and when the operation ended after 60 days, we had lost 116 helicopters shot down in Laos. We had another 600-plus uh, battle damage. About 20% of those were so badly damaged they couldn't be used. We lost 78 helicopter crew members. We had 58 wounded, and we had 17 MIAs. And all this was within 60 days. Um, we had a saying with the pilots, when we crossed the border between Laos and South Vietnam, you had a 50-50 chance of coming back alive. Oh. It was that rough. And uh, to put it in another perspective, if you flew in South Vietnam and you went into what we called hot landing zones, uh, you'd be shot at by small arms fire, AK-47s, machine guns. Some mortar rounds might plop in on the LZ, uh, fragments of flying everywhere, and some rocket-propelled grenades. But when, within the second week when we were flying into Laos, we were shot at by 20-millimeter cannon, 40-millimeter cannon. It was like flying over Europe with the powder puffs, you know, the bombers up there, and you see right. all that black. Uh, we, didn't, we, we weren't at altitude, but uh, they could set those things where they could explode real close after they shot them off. So we took a lot of fire from those heavy weapons and tanks, and it was, a, it was, a, it was really rough, so... Uh, 
I flew through that. I was very fortunate. I uh, went down a few times, but got out. Um, when that ended, I finished my tour there uh, with the 101st flying other missions, uh, but nothing like that. That came at the end of the war um, for, for the Americans. We wound down. Think about that now. It's 1971. Nixon's pulled out two-thirds of the troops. You know the war is where they're going. the rest of us are going to go home. And here they go, and they kick off this operation deep in Laos, and they send the American helicopter force in to support them in 60 days. And, and you just sit there, I don't want to die over here now. I don't want to be the last man. So that was tough. That was tough to get up in the morning. It was tough to go to bed at night if you knew you were going to fly the next day. And uh, everybody says, well, you know, how would you describe it? I said, well, those 90, those 60 days were, if I'd been a cat, I used my nine lives and then so. so. And the rest of my tour was uh, much more, uh, not as intense. I had a few moments uh, between uh, April and when I uh, came back home in the middle of December. But that was more uh, related to weather and mechanical issues. Uh, seldom was there heavy up part, uh, fighting like we, we did then. So that was kind of my war experience in Vietnam. Gotcha. Appreciate it. Everyone... Just from so the the helicopter that you flew the Chinook. This is a troop carrier, right? Yes, uh, the Chinook is the big one. They still use them extensively in the army. In uh, you carry internal loads, which would be troops, uh, or externals, uh, sling loads. For the uh, for the op- in a combat situation, and, and all of them were combat in Laos. We didn't take any internal troops because if we got shot down, that could be five guys in the Chinook, 30 guys in the right. troops inside. We carried all the sling loads. The Hueys, the slicks, they call them, they would take in the troops, six, seven in a chopper, and they come in 15, 18 choppers. They'd drop them off and, and bring the men in and out. We'd bring in their supplies. We'd sling in their building supplies, their ammunition, their food, their water blivets, their 105s, their small Jeeps, and we'd have two, three slings hanging under the Chinook and we'd come in and get into the LZ, drop them off and, and, and take on off again. So we resupplied them. Uh, without us, they wouldn't have got the supplies they needed. The Hueys could get them small stuff in, but, um, you know, it was basically get the men in and get them out and medevac them. Uh, we weren't allowed to take troops into Laos because of the potential for loss. Makes perfect sense. Uh, uh, th- thanks so much for for talking about this. I, you know, Chariots of the Sky, a story about U.S. assault helicopter pilots at war in Vietnam, um, is is your book. And the, who's your target audience, and why'd you write Chariots? Well, I wrote it. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I started out as a, as a screenplay many many years ago. Didn't didn't uh, didn't get option, and uh, twenty years later or so, I just decided. You know. It's a story I wanted to tell because there's never been a movie made, number one, about the helicopter aspect of that war. You always hear a helicopter somewhere in a Vietnam War movie, but you don't really, you don't really live through the, the, the chopper pilots, so to speak. So, uh, and then there's not, not that many books out there about the helicopter aspect of the war, although there are, there are several, and there's some really good ones. Uh, most of them are written in the form of an autobiography or a biography or compilation of, uh, of stories from different pilots and groups. Uh, so I, I just felt compelled to tell that story uh, as best I could and get it out there about Lomson. There's a couple books about Lomson, but not too many. Um, so I just chose to do that and uh, see what happens. Uh, it's, again, it's been quite successful. I'm very pleased about that. That's awesome. Love it. The, you know, um, I got to ask, are you or some of the soldiers you fought with represented in, in your book, Chariots of, of the Sky? I get a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> People who know me <clears throat> said, you should have just called this an autobiography, Larry. <laughs> I recognize some of it, but uh, the answer to that is, uh, no, they're not. there's not one person. The characters are all fictional, but they are based on um, you know men that I served with. Uh, to some extent, like the main character, I, uh, you know, he's a little bit of me in there, but he's also a combination of two other fellows that, uh, that were, you know, I was close to. And, uh, then there's a couple of commanding officers, uh, were, uh, loosely based on some men I served with and, and uh, some of the other pilots. So 
they're all fictional, but there is some, uh, some, I drew on, to build these people, I, I drew on people I had served with or, or knew a little bit. And the experiences that are in that book all actually happened to somebody in some group. I either saw it myself, experienced it, or knew about it. Uh, I wanted to, in that book, I wanted to put a helicopter pilots in the middle of what a helicopter pilot in Vietnam would endure. And I wanted the reader to basically experience all of it to some extent without going, you know, not going overboard. There's four, four basic ways a helicopter can ruin a pilot's whole day in combat. One is flying in combat. Two is having mechanical issues, which can happen, especially in Vietnam. They flew those helicopters to the maximum constantly. I mean, we literally would use uh, duct tape to pull, uh, wrap around blades that had bullets that went through them until we get a new blade, wow. particularly some of the Hueys. Um, third would be weather. Vietnam was notorious for its weather. I personally had several incidents associated with weather. I had my share of mechanical issues, too. And then lastly was human human error. So a pilot could, a crew could experience any one of those, some of them at a, more than one at the same time. And I wanted to capture all that. It wasn't just flying in and out of hot LZ. So there was a lot of, of uh, I wanted to put in there and let the reader you know, experience. Oh, excellent. I, I appreciate that. You know, you're, your most uh, recent book is Legacy of Honor, the Patriarch. This novel focuses on the horrors of World War I. Uh, could you share some of what that war was like? Well, I, I um, like I said, I, I knew my grandfather and I uh, knew some of his, his friends, and I'll come back and cover that in a second. But I'm big movie guy. I've seen some movies over the years. Uh, uh, you know, there's not that many about World War I. Probably... Uh, the newest one is that movie 1917 that got critically acclaimed. Right. Uh, but uh, I've read books about it, and I've seen a lot of documentaries. Uh, then, having experienced a little bit of uh, combat myself, I had some of those emotions buried down that I could pull out when I was writing the book. But uh, what it was like, World War One, that all wars are, are, are you know, they're bad. They're, 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 they, people die, people get wounded, people carry their experiences the rest of them. That's just, no matter what war, what period of time, that's just the way it is. But in World War I, we transitioned from, from massive amounts of men fighting in long lines and just going at each other until one prevailed over the other. Uh, in World War I, they mechanized that to a degree that had never been experienced before. The, the machine guns were a major weapon used by both sides that just cut down whole companies of men at a time, 200, 300 men at a time. Uh, airplanes were introduced that could strafe and bomb from the air in World War I, the biplanes, which they did. Uh, gas was used by the by all combatants during that war. They dropped artillery shells of gas, and then they even had uh, rockets that would explode over the battlefield and drop pellets of gas down. And then the uh, artillery was taken to a whole new level. They had hum huge uh, artillery pieces and large mortars that could just drop incredible projectiles down on the battlefield, on the battlefield, in the trenches, behind the trenches. Um, so there was just a multitude of new weapons, and the tanks were introduced uh, on the battlefield. Uh, so it was a highly mechanized war, which resulted in massive casualties and deaths. The war itself ran from 1914 to armistice in 1918, November 11th. And the Americans didn't get into it really until July of 1917. But prior to that, the French, the Belgians, the English, and the Germans, they, they went at each other. Millions of men were killed uh, just before we got into that uh, war. And then we lost several hundred thousand of our men in the, in the battle. Uh, when we went into the war in 1917 in July, June, July, we had an army of less than 200,000 men. <laughs> when we came out of that war, we had over 4,000 men who had served in the army. In the last major battle, which I portrayed in the book, Moose Argonne, uh, we had two full armies, uh, American armies involved with over a million men fighting in that. We had a 25-mile section of the of the front line there uh, with the French on one side, the Belgium and the English, 
We had our own uh, sector, 25 miles, and two, a million-plus Americans fought in that sector to push the Germans through the valley and on the other side and try to get into Germany. And, uh, and just in that conflict, we lost the most number of uh, Americans. Uh, there's a, in my book, on the back of the book cover, there's a picture of the Moose Argonne Cemetery where over 14,000 American soldiers are buried there that lost their lives just in that battle which ran about 60 days, but it was, uh, it was horrendous. Um, and they lined them up. They still fought the way they had prior to that, where you, know, you see the civil war movies where all the troops are in big long lines, two, three deep are the revolutionary wars and just go out across these battlefields and shoot at each other. Well, that's how they did it there. They would just line up and go across these killing fields called no man's land, and try and take each other's trenches, uh, and just send waves and waves of men across them. Uh, subjected to all that metal coming, uh, steel coming back at them. So it was a it was a terrific, uh, horrendous experience. I appreciate you sharing that. It's it just uh, you know one of the yeah, one of the problems of advancements um, is that uh, when you go to war, they all play a role, don't they? <laughs> oh, they do. Yeah. Look uh, at what we got today. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yes. Uh, all right. So let's take the audience on a brief journey of your novel, Legacy of Honor, the Patriarch. Um, where are we in the war and uh, what's going on there? Well, in the book, the, the story centers around the main character, protagonist Sam McCormick. Um, he's a young man. He loses his mother and father on the, uh, in 1915 when the uh, Lusitania is sunk by the Germans. They're going back to the old country where they had immigrated from to see their families and they and their Lusitania is sunk by the German U-boat, and they lose their lives. And, and he's left by himself. He's like 16 at the time, 17. And he worked for his uh, dad as a, a common laborer in a, in Wellsville, Ohio. There as a uh, in a in a pottery factory, which his father was one of the uh, owners of. Well, when the war breaks out, well before the war breaks out, to make a little extra money, the character. Uh, like a lot of guys did back then, volunteers for the National Guard to make a little extra money so he could live um, a little more comfortably. And he did that, and then the war breaks out and uh, uh, for the Americans. Uh, we declared war on the Germans in, like, uh, I think it was April or May of 1917, and they wanted to send an American division over to the France as soon as possible. The military didn't think they had a, an army, regular army division ready. It was their guard units were more prepared than their regular army. Uh, so they were going to send a national guard division over. But the problem was there was big war fever in our country at that time. And a lot of the states wanted their division to be the one to go over. There were like 20-some different national guard divisions around the country. And they were afraid if they sent just one, the other states would be mad that theirs didn't go. So they came up with this idea of pulling units from all the guard units and making one division out of different units from all the, the divisions, the National Guard Division across the country. And, and uh, at the time, Major uh, oh, McNamara, not McNamara, uh, MacArthur came up with the idea of calling it the Rainbow Division, which it became known as the 42nd Division was the Rainbow Division because they pulled all these different units and send them over there. Our characters gets pulled into that. He's one of the units they draw from Ohio to form that unit. He goes over, he serves in three, the major battles that, uh, that, uh, we were involved in leading up to the armistice. Uh, he gets wounded a couple times. He meets a French nurse in one of the recovery uh, hospitals there, falls in love. And when the war ends, he comes back and he starts, uh, he starts his life uh, and, and marries uh, this this nurse, brings her back, and they settle in Louisville, Ohio. He goes back to work for steel companies and and, and lives uh, and works in that capacity. But uh, he's dealing with a lot of health issues and not getting any help from anybody. These, these fellows had terrible digestive issues and respiratory issues, especially if they'd been gassed. And if they spent any time on the in the trenches, they would have been subjected to some gas. So he deals with all that, and then uh, he gets involved, pulled into the uh, 1932 Bonus Army March, uh, which is a pretty interesting part of our history that I really didn't know anything about till I researched it. Till I got to put this in the book. I mean, it's it's I won't talk about it, but it's in the book. It's a pretty tragic event in our history, particularly the way we treated our veterans. Over 12,000 of them have descended on Washington to meet with Congress and demand they get their bonuses which had been promised to him in 1919, but wouldn't be paid to him until 1945. Now think about that. It's crazy. 
a lot of these guys wouldn't be alive then. But anyway, they, they wanted their Congress to accelerate those and help them out in the Great Depression. And that was a tragic period of our history. And then these little steel strikes in the Ohio area in the 30s, 1937. Steel stri- our strikes across the country were you know prevalent back in that time, and they could be pretty violent. And uh, a lot of veterans worked in these uh, different factories and stuff that were trying to unionize. So they always seemed to bear the brunt of uh, what was taking place and might have had something to do with, you know, they'd served in the military and they had ingrained in them to help their fellow man and help each other. And they seemed to be targeted more, more or less than other people in those strikes. And so I wanted to capture a little bit of that. So that's my main character. He's got a pretty interesting life and sees a lot and experiences a lot. And he has a son, Sam, who um, will go on to, he's in book two and uh, he's, as a young boy, he's exposed to the aviation, which is really coming of its own, and he meets some pilots, and he wants to fly, and, and of course, in book two, that's where we go with that. That is awesome, and so that's a great uh, segue, because uh, that's what I was getting ready to say, is so uh, The Patriarch is part one, um, so right. could you give a commercial for part two? Yeah, part two, we've uh, it's called The Air Warrior, and uh, Sam McCormick, the Patriarch, he has one son, uh, Sean McCormick, and uh, he's, uh, he goes on to be an aviator. In World War II, he's an Army Corps aviator uh, flying out of England with the 8th Air Force. He's involved in major bombing raids over Germany, uh, survives the war, uh, <clears throat> comes back, gets out, tries to get established in the civilian world for a while. And then the Korean War breaks out. He gets pulled back in. And he's tra- he flew B-17s in Europe. And then, and he's brought back in. He's transitioned to the B-29, sent over to Okinawa, and flies bombing missions over North, North well, Korea, mostly North Korea as the war progressed. And uh, then comes the war ends. He comes back and he makes a career out of the military, and, and he's uh, in what they call SAC, Strategic Air Command bomber bases. And he's pulled into the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, in the early part of the Vietnam War. So his career spans World War II from the beginning to the early phases of uh, the Vietnam War. But in writing that and researching some of that, I knew a lot, I knew a little bit about World War II, having been around men that flew in that. And just something about World War II, everybody's read books about that or seen some movies. Uh, not so much about Korea. I mean, you know, they call it the Forgotten War. Uh, and I wanted my character to fly uh, over uh, bombing raids over North Korea. And I researched that. And I, I was just, uh, I was amazed at what these men went through flying missions over Korea. So I've embedded that in the book. And I think people that uh, hopefully they'll, you know, buy the book, read it, and enjoy it uh, from the standpoint of historical uh, aspects. But they'll learn some stuff about the Korean War that I don't think most people know anything about. I'm not like I'm a history guy, history, historical guy. And I, I didn't know a lot of this stuff. Not that this is something I'd want to know any day, but. I was I was just amazed at it. I don't know how these guys did it. I just don't know how they did it. But anyway, that's embedded in the book. So, um, and that uh, is now out in an advanced reader copy to some reviewers, and we hope to have it published and out and available sometime in the end of August, going into September. And we'll be posting that out on all my social medias when it's uh, ready to go. Awesome, awesome, and it's uh, just around the corner. So good stuff. I, uh, so let's talk about this. Uh, uh, as we're starting to wrap up, while you were focused on researching and writing your books or from your life's journey during the war in Vietnam, is there a lesson that will stick with you forever? Well, a quick couple. I, having, having been in Vietnam and doing what I did, I, I always enjoyed life, but I tell you what, it gave me a new fresh perspective on don't take any day for granted. Enjoy every day and, uh, you know, li- live to your fullest. Uh, and as you go through life, uh, you know, Live it with character. Live it with integrity. Um, kind of, you're kind of, kind of like books. You know, we're uh, come back to book analogies, but you know, we're born, which is chapter one, and we die, which is the last chapter. What you do between those two chapters with your life is your life, and you can write as many chapters as you want during your life. And are they going to, you know, are you going to live a good life? And is it going to uh, be one that you're proud of and, and other people would say I, I knew that person and you, you brought some value to your life and not maybe other people's lives so uh, I kind of just walk away from with, with all that and that's kind of what I'm trying to capture a little bit in the trilogy 
you know, these, these characters each have their own beginning and end and what they do in between to find them. That's excellent. Uh, love that. Uh, love that message. I, uh, Larry, could you share your thoughts about why we need to acknowledge the honor, courage, and sacrifice of soldiers of all wars? Yes. Uh, having grown up around them my whole life, I actually met Audie Murphy when I was a little boy. <laughs> Everybody knows or did know who Audie Murphy is. Oh, I do. Decorated. Excellent. Yeah, World War II soldier. That's awesome. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, uh, these are men and women that, uh, you know, they, they sign up, they take an oath, and then they go into the military, and I'm going to pull in our law enforcement people across the board, too, because it's the same scenario, in my opinion. Uh, and they put their lives on the line, uh, whether they realize it or not, the day they, they take that oath. And uh, in the military, you know, there's no guarantee that you won't go into a war or a conflict or see some action. And if you do, there's no guarantee you're going to come out alive. So it's serious business. Uh, and we as Americans live in a country that enjoys a high degree, compared to a lot of places around the world, a high degree of freedom, uh, 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 low risk, uh, opportunity, uh, safety. We get up in the morning, we eat breakfast, drink our coffee, go to work or do what we're going to do and go throughout the day. And we really don't think about all this. We just take it for granted. Uh, and who are the people providing that for us? Because the world is full of bad people that want to take it away from us. And all you got to do is just look at the news if you, or read some of the stories out there and just look at our recent history. So who is keeping them at bay? Who's giving us this sense of freedom? That's the people serving, the men and women in the military and the men and women in our law enforcement across the country. Uh, these, these folks deserve our respect. They deserve our support. And uh, God bless them, because not everybody's uh, cut out to do that kind of work. Uh, and, and, and the military is not for everybody. Now, just think about it real quick. World War II, over 16 million men served in World War II. Uh, that was a large percentage of the men that were eligible to, to serve. Amazing. Now we're lucky to get, we can't even get 1%. Right. And the military is struggling to reach their uh, their recruitment grows by substantial amounts of uh, numbers. So it's, it's a whole different ball game, but who are these people? Uh, where do they come from? Let's, let's uh, give them their respect and their support. And maybe the young people out there ought to look at possibly going into one of those areas. And uh, it is a rewarding career. It is a rewarding uh, endeavor and it's certainly important. <laughs> so, no, you know, veteran, you know, show them respect. Love it. Thank you so much. And you're so right. Um, so right. Uh, uh, Larry, if someone wanted to follow up and connect with you and or learn more, where would you send them? Well, I'd start with my website, uh, LarryFreeland.com. Uh, you go there and you'll see a little bit about my books. You'll see the different uh, articles and, and interviews and things that have been done. You'll see write-ups about it. I uh, get a little of my history and, and background and all that. And uh, that's a good place to start. And if you want, and if you're intrigued, you want to buy one of the books, uh, you can go to buy the book and it brings up the book, uh, the four sites that's available on Amazon, available on Barnes and Noble, Indie, and uh, bam, books a million. And you can hit any one of those and it brings you right to their site with my book and you can go, you know, you can order it from there. Uh, I encourage people if they use bookstores to support their local bookstores and you, know, you can order my books through that in it's in paperback and it's in ebook format, all platforms. I'm also on Facebook and I'm in LinkedIn. And those are on my website at the bottom of each page that you pull up. So kind of there they are. Excellent. And I'll have that information in the show notes also. So it's easy for him to find. And uh, just uh, you want to remind him one more time about when your uh, next book's coming out? My next book is Legacy of Honor. The Air Warrior, and it should be out the end of August going into September. Uh, I'll put stuff out on our uh, social media and you can pre-order it, which always helps for Amazon. If you get a lot of pre-orders on day one, you go, oh, look at that. It's nice. number one for the first day. Actually, my legacy of honor, The Patriarch, it was the number one bestseller for a new book for two weeks when it came out. Excellent. It's, it's hanging in a little higher now, but uh, yeah, it, it's, it's done well too. But anyway, 
That is awesome. Uh, Larry, thank you so much for sharing your books, Chariots of the Sky, a story about U.S. assault helicopter pilots at war in Vietnam, and Legacy of Honor, the Patriarch. Uh, these are powerful books, and thank you so much for your, your service to our country and wishing you the best in all that you do. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate you having me on. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. The opinions expressed on Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.